Today's word is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is God's word. And keep your Bibles open to First Peter 5. And uh, before we uh, pray, I just want to invite you all once again uh, to join us this evening for our time of prayer for the mission. Uh, as, a, as a church, our vision is to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. But we have nothing to give apart from God showing up. And so if we want to be serious about the mission God has given us to make disciples for Christ, to make the glory of God known, we must be a people of prayer. And so uh, this is, in my opinion, one of the most important things we can do is to gather and pray for gospel renewal uh, right here in New England. So I just wanted to invite you to join us again tonight for that very important part of what it means to be the body of Christ and to be a body of Christ on mission for the Lord. It begins with prayer. Uh, so let's do that together as we look at God's word in First Peter. Gracious God, we do thank you that we, uh, of all people, have an audience with the King of the universe. Uh, Lord, we come to you not because we are worthy, uh, not because we have it all together or have figured anything out, not because of anything that comes from us. We come to you humble as children redeemed by the blood of Christ. Lord, all we have is Christ, and it's through our union with him that we have an audience with you. And so I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would meet us this morning, that you would, in fact, speak through your word into our hearts. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. At a Boy Scout camp uh, several years ago, the camp directors took the boys deep into the wilderness and then divided them into three teams. Each team was equipped with their scouting handbook and then given their task. They had to first choose leaders from among their, themselves to guide them through the wilderness but second, they needed to choose the right kind of leaders according to the handbook. And then third, they needed to make sure that, that those leaders that they chose executed their role in the right way and for the right purposes, again, according to the handbook. If they did that, they would be well suited for making their way through the wilderness back to base camp. Well, the first team was skeptical of the idea of leadership. In fact, they were suspicious of, of really any and all authority structures. They saw them as kind of thinly disguised attempts at, at taking advantage of, or exerting power and control 
over others. Even the handbook itself was simply some people trying to tell other people how to live. And so they decided that everyone on their team would be the leader. That no one, no one's ideas were more right than anybody else's ideas. They were all equal, and therefore that meant they all had to play the same role. We're all leaders here. Which, of course, meant that nobody was really leading, and they're still wandering the wilderness to this day. (laughs) Now, the second team saw the wisdom in selecting leaders. But rather than closely follow the categories of leadership laid out in the handbook, they simply assigned the kind of leaders that they had all become used to, the kind of leaders their troop had always had and the troop before them and before them. To be honest, there were some significant differences between those kinds of leaders and the ones described in the handbook. Uh, There were some similarities as well. And, you know, after all, we've learned a lot since the handbook was published. We can maybe improve on this a little bit. But when it came to actually applying the handbook to the situation, there was a lot of confusion because what it said didn't always fit this new kind of leader they had created. And so some things simply just got left out. That created a a kind of a growing distrust among some of the team members as they watched their leaders kind of picking and choosing which parts of the handbook they were going to follow. They did eventually make it through the wilderness but not without great difficulty and division in their ranks. Now, the third team followed the handbook very closely when it came to the kind of leaders that they were going to select. In fact, they prided themselves in it as they watched the other teams kind of struggle in that area. But once they'd assigned the right kind of leaders, they assumed that they were good and failed to consult the handbook in terms of how those leaders should lead. And the new, newly appointed leaders charged the way forward. They were determined that they were going to be the first team through the wilderness. And they were so focused on making progress that they didn't notice that some of the team members were having a hard time keeping up. When they realized that, They chided them and questioned their commitment to the cause. And so team members began feeling abandoned and used. Distrust and disunity cropped up here as well. They did, in fact, reach the edge of the wilderness first, but not without leaving several team members behind. Now, there is, of course, a moral to this parable the dead end of having no leadership, the difficulty of having the wrong kind of leadership, and the danger of having the right kind but wrong quality of leadership. And there's another lesson to the parable, that had they followed the handbook, much of their woe and trouble would have been sorted out. Not that they wouldn't have faced problems along the way, but they would have known how to deal with them. And so when we think about leadership in the church today, God has not left us in the wilderness by ourselves to figure everything out on our own. He has given us a handbook. He's given us the scriptures. 
his word, which tell us that, one, we do in fact need leaders in the church, two, that we need the right kind of leaders, namely elders and deacons, as he lays it out, but third, we need those leaders to carry out their roles in the right way for the right purposes. To put it another way in light of our current series, we need gospel-shaped elders and deacons at the helm of our local churches. Now, that we need leaders should be painfully obvious. Um, it's kind of a, you know, a no-brainer. And yet, what's interesting is that in recent years, there's been quite a cry of resistance against any sort of leadership or authority of, at all. Uh, one of the fruits of uh, postmodern philosophy in recent years is just to kind of create this culture of suspicion toward authority, that, we're, that any sort of authority claim is simply a, a power play in disguise. And, and so we're, we're afraid of being taken advantage of by others, or we're afraid of giving others the impression that we're trying to take advantage of them And so we're afraid to have leaders with any sort of conviction. A little over 10 years ago, there was a whole church movement in the United States that was founded in part on this suspicion. Nobody's necessarily wrong. We're all just friends at the table having a conversation. Nobody's leading anybody else here. Shouldn't surprise us that that movement has been defunct for almost five years. I mean, leadership makes sense, but it's not just logical, it's also biblical. God talks a lot about leadership in the scriptures. I mean, last week we looked at kind of leadership in general in Ephesians chapter 4. The fact that all of us in some way, because we have been gifted by Christ for the building up of his body, will exert some sort of leadership responsibility in our lives, and, and Christ has given that to us, not so that we look good, but so that he looks good in the building up of the body of Christ. So we looked at a more general picture last year, but, but God gets pretty specific about what kind and what quality of leaders he wants in his church. And this has been pretty confused, uh, confused over the centuries uh, of churches selecting the kinds of leaders that they were used to, rather than looking carefully at what the scriptures said. But, but if we let this book, this handbook, the Bible, set our categories for what kind of leaders God wants in his church, we see that there are two specific offices of leadership that Christ has given to the church, elders and deacons. And so I want to get more specific today and next week. We're going to talk about eldership today and and how the gospel ought to shape that in the congregation and we'll look at deacons next week so why elders where does this idea come from well very briefly if you look at at the book of acts and when christ's apostles remember the 12 apostles who were with christ and were witnesses of his resurrection as they spread the gospel through the book of Acts and were establishing churches, one of their goals was to appoint elders in each congregation for the ongoing guidance and oversight of the church. 
For instance, we read in Acts 14, 21 through 23. When they, which is Paul and Barnabas here, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they established a church and then they appointed elders. We see something similar uh, when Paul instructs Titus in Titus 1.5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then notice how Paul sometimes calls elders by another name, overseers, as he does just two verses later in Titus, Titus 1.7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And that word overseer is sometimes translated with the word bishop. We've all heard that word before. That's how the, new, that's how the, the old King James uh, translates it here. But it's referring to the same office. And so elder and overseer, that's the same office of leadership in the church. And according to the New Testament, as, as Paul gives instructions for, okay, so, so what does that office do? What kind of people ought to, ought to fill that office? Places like 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and then Titus 1. This office of elder is to be filled by qualified men who are above reproach in character, faithful in their marriage, self-controlled, humble, hospitable, able to teach, not lovers of money or greedy, but good stewards of their own families and home. Again, you can look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to kind of get that full-orbed list. Now, the office is given to men not because there's no place for women in ministry. In fact, the office of elder is the only leadership office in the New Testament that is uniquely for men. Every other office and leadership role is open for both men and women. And that's kind of a confusing thing in our day and time a bit, but there's a reason for it. It's not because of ability. Uh, It's not because of the culture of the time and Paul accommodating to that. And nor is it a result of the fall, as some suggest. But when Paul explains his reason for it in 1 Timothy 2, he explains that the reason that, that men are set apart as elders is to be a reflection of God's order in creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so just as God rules his creation and exercises his rule by ordering it in a certain way, So he rules the church, and he's woven into it a reminder of his rule by shaping the church's leadership structure as a reflection of his order and creation. The point is to remind ourselves that God is king and creator, and that he's the one who puts things into order. And so Christ has given elders to the church for leadership and oversight. Again, he's given deacons also. We'll talk about that next week. So we need leaders and we need the right kind. We need elders. But what are those elders supposed to do? And how should they do it? 
And what does the gospel of Jesus have to say about that? That's really, I think, the most important question. Because simply getting the category right doesn't change a thing. It doesn't guarantee anything about the well-functioning order of the church. Putting the right label on it, if you will. We need to have the right quality among our elders. We need them to carry out the right roles in the right way for the right purposes. And so let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 1, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What is the essential calling of an elder? What are they supposed to do? They're to shepherd the flock of God. That's the job description. Not their own flock. God's flock. The church does not belong to the elders or anybody else. It belongs to Jesus. It's been bought with his blood. But they are called to shepherd it both with the gospel and by the gospel. Now, unfortunately, this is not always what happens in the name of elder leadership in churches. Uh, Too often we assume that because we've got the right category, we put elder on our website somewhere, we're good. And then we, we... hijack that role for our own purposes or roles, or we look to other models or standards of leadership to kind of spell out the responsibilities. For instance, we assume that being an elder is like administrating a school, or running a company, or commanding a warship, or managing a project, or directing operations, or overseeing subcontractors, or serving on a board of trustees. And those are all useful skills and no doubt in some way will overlap. But shepherding God's flock is a unique calling and responsibility. And so what does it then mean to shepherd? What, what is it, whether you're an elder right now or whether you're someone led by elders, what should we expect of our elders? What is it that God has called them to do? What should we be praying for them for as they seek to do it? What does it mean to be a shepherd? Well, if you just think about the metaphor itself, what does a shepherd do? Like an actual shepherd with a staff and everything. You know, they watch over the well-being of the sheep. They're responsible for the well-being of the sheep. That means feeding them, leading them to where they need to go, protecting them from predators or from uh, pits or cliffs or anything like that. All of which requires knowing the flock, being among them and with them. Timothy Whitmer, in his excellent book, The Shepherd Leader, suggests that those four categories capture the essential responsibilities of elders. They must know the flock, lead the flock, feed the flock, and protect the flock. That's what elders are called to do. And so first, shepherds, are called to lead the sheep. And we we see that right here in verse 2. Peter says, shepherd the flock 
by exercising oversight. There's an overseeing function, uh, uh, maintaining the well-being. There's a level of authority and responsibility involved in guarding the flock and in guiding them where they need to go. Now, the elders do not set the agenda for where they need to go. That's crucial and often confused. The elders may be shepherds, but they are not the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so the elders take, must take their cues from him, according to the handbook. That's, that's the guide. This is Christ's church, not the elders. And it's Christ's word and ultimately his gospel that shows us the way forward during what Peter calls our time of exile, as we're living out our days in this fallen world between what Christ has accomplished on the cross and what he's promised in the new creation when he returns. This is the wilderness. Where do we go? We look to the gospel for our cue on how to live out our days. And it's the elder's job to make sure we continue to do that. If you look at verse 1, notice how even when Peter exhorts the elders, he's doing so out of, a, out of the framework of the good news of Christ. So he exhorts them not only as an elder, but as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's looking back to the cross and as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He's looking forward to the new creation. And it's in light of those things that we are called to exercise oversight, to lead. The elders are called to lead the flock according to the gospel. So they lead, but if you're going to do that well, you must also feed the flock with the gospel, with the word of God. If you think, think about what Jesus charged Peter at the end of John 21. Remember how when, when Jesus was on trial, Peter denied him three times, saying, you know, I don't know the man. And then later you have this beautiful scene after the resurrection when Jesus and Peter are talking and Jesus asks him three times, three denials, now three chances to, to change his tune, three times, do you love me? And of course he says yes. And what is it that Jesus then says to Peter? Feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. You think of what Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 two. Preach the word. That was his essential charge. And so Christ rules his church by his word. If, if that's the case, elders and shepherds must be faithful teachers of God's word. Now, you might be saying, I thought that's what we hired pastors to do. I'm glad you brought that up. What is the relationship between an elder and a pastor according to the Bible. It's very simple. There's no difference. There's no difference. Pastors are elders and elders are pastors. Or you might think of it as elder is the office and pastoring is the chief responsibility. Pastor means shepherd. comes from the Latin word for shepherd. We've been talking about pastoring all along here. So why do we have both pastors and elders at Westgate then? If we want to use biblical categories, 
And, and thankfully, our bylaws actually reflect this. Uh, what we have is a team of elders, two of whom make their living at it, and we call them pastors. But, but Pastor Bruce and I have no more authority than any of the other elders on our board, and we share a common responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. Now, the fact that we make our living at it does free us up to be able to give more time and attention to it. And very often, vocational elders, if you will, or pastors, have often had a lot of experience and training to help prepare them for that role. Uh, Sometimes we have specific responsibilities entrusted to us because of that time and training. For instance, the preaching of the word. But that doesn't mean... Uh, that elders are the o- that the pastors are the only ones responsible for teaching. Uh, it doesn't mean that the pulpit is the only place where that teaching happens. It's central because it's the one time when the whole flock is gathered together under God's word. That's why it's so important. But but teaching the word takes all sorts of shapes, and I hope to see more of our elders taking the pulpit. We had Mark do that a you know a while back. But regardless of whether somebody's gifted at public speaking or not, elders must teach the word. We must feed the sheep. So we lead, we feed, we must also protect. Because this fallen wilderness is fraught with pits and it's full of predators, if we're going to be honest. And so we protect the flock by guarding sound doctrine and by going after the strays. Elders must protect the flock by guarding sound doctrine and going after the strays. When Paul handed his ministry off to the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, he gave them this charge, Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, or more literally, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Elders must be on guard against the enemy. Think of back in 1 Peter 5, just a few verses after he calls the elders to shepherd the flock. He says this in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's an image taken straight out of the picture of shepherding. How many times is it that the shepherds are beating off the lions in the Old Testament? Who's the biggest lion we need to be aware of? So elders must protect the flock. They must guard sound doctrine keeping the life-giving message of the gospel unpolluted among us. D.A. Carson says, A good pastor is like a plumber. His responsibility is to make sure that the nourishing water flows in for the good and the life of the entire community, and all the rubbish, the excrement, and the garbage flow out. That's our job. We must protect sound, healthy doctrine. But we must also go after sheep who wander from the fold, whether through false teaching or false living. That too, that's a hard part. That, that part gets messy. That's the part that you lose sleep over. 
when it comes to the elder's responsibility. But it's a very Jesus-like activity, isn't it? Think about it. You know, searching out wandering members, keeping watch, tracking down the strays. It's a Jesus-shaped activity. And if we love the sheep as Christ loves the, loves the sheep, we'll be willing to do that whatever the cost. And so elders lead as shepherds. They feed, they protect the flock. But all of that requires actually knowing the flock, having relationship with the congregation. As my friend Jeremy Rennie puts it, elders should smell like sheep. They should smell like sheep. One, because you are one. Elders are not above the flock. They're part of the flock. And two, because if you do not know the flock, you can't know the flock unless you're among them. And if you don't know them, it's really hard to lead and feed and protect them, isn't it? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So a good shepherd has relationship with the sheep. Now, Rennie, Jeremy Rennie explains that by contrast, overseers who operate in an elder as trustee model or board of directors model need not be among the people. They can attend monthly meetings, participate in board debates, cast votes, and then go home having a sense of fulfilled, fulfilling their duties. That's not shepherding the flock. It matters to God not only that we have leaders, but that we have the right kind of leaders who understand their calling in the right way to be shepherds. You don't send an electrician in to do a plumber's job, even though both of them contribute to building the house. Elders are not a board of directors. They are a team of shepherds, which means knowing the flock, loving them, being with them, feeding, leading protecting even when it gets messy, even when the sheep bite. Now, this is a hard passage for a pastor to preach. And it's hard for elders to listen to because it just kind of exposes all of the ways where we're dropping the ball on things. We are growing in this as elders at Westgate. We have not arrived. Uh, we're not, we've not arrived. We're trying We're trying to grow. In fact, we have a retreat coming up, and one of the key things we do at our elder retreat each year is to spend time learning how to be better shepherds because we want to serve you as God would have us. If you think about that, pray for us that we can continue to do a better job. But there's one more thing that makes eldership hard, and that's the heart of the elder. The heart of the elder. Pastoral ministry is hard whether you're paid for it or not. And it's not uncommon uh, for elders to struggle with their motives or their methods and in, in what they're trying to do. And, and when you run into that hardship, it's really tempting to just think that the problem lies with someone else. You know, the, the old adage, ministry would be easy if it weren't for people. But as Jared Wilson reminds us, The primary problem in pastoral ministry, brother pastor, is not them, it's you. 
You are your biggest problem. And you think again about what Paul charged the Ephesian elders. He didn't just say, pay careful attention to the flock. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock. The elder's shepherding responsibility begins with watching his own heart. It's not, just, it's not enough to just shepherd the flock with the gospel. We must also shepherd it by the gospel, by our own dependence on it, applying it to our own hearts first. And Peter gets at this in verses 2 through 3 in chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. How? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Notice how he outlines three competing motivations or methods that flow from the heart of an elder. Willingness versus compulsion. Eagerness versus shameful gain. And being an example versus domineering. It's only as the gospel works on our hearts personally that we're able to shepherd faithfully. So I want to look briefly at these three tensions, these three competing motives. First, elders must shepherd willingly, not under compulsion. And the question is pretty simple. Am I doing this because I want to or because I have to? That's the first question for an elder. Am I doing this because I want to or because I have to? Elders should be elders in part because they want to be. They should have an aspiration. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of elder or overseer, he desires a noble task. And that's not the only qualification, but it's important that we do it out of a genuine desire, not being forced. For starters, because if it's forced, you're likely to burn out a lot quicker. But second, you know, if I'm doing this because I feel like I have to, whether it's out of guilt, you know, if, if I, if the nomination committee's like contacting me three years now, and if I don't say yes, they're just not going to leave me alone. You know, if I'm doing it out of guilt, like I feel like I'm going to let somebody down, or if I feel like I'm doing it because I have something to prove, whether to myself or, or to someone else, that if I can just, if I can a- aspire and attain to that role, then people will finally accept me and think that I'm important and so on. If I'm doing it because I feel like I have to for some reason, that's not good for anybody. It's not good for me. It's not good for you. Now, after looking at 1 Peter 5, some of you are probably thinking, who would ever want to do something like that? Who would ever aspire to that role as a shepherd? A terrifying responsibility. And it's okay if if not everybody has that desire. Not everybody needs to have that desire. But for those who do, we have to remember, first, that it's the gospel that ultimately qualifies you for this role. It's what Christ has done on the cross through his spirit that makes an elder capable of meeting the qualifications that, that Paul lays out in Timothy and Titus. 
But second, it's also the same gospel that sanctifies our desire, that, that makes it our desire free from compulsion. So if I don't have to serve out of guilt because my guilt has been taken care of on the cross, and if I have nothing to prove because my sufficiency and my acceptance and identity are secured in what Christ has done for me, if I have no guilt or no nothing to prove, I'm free to actually serve out of joyful willingness, not compulsion. That comes from being freed by the gospel of Jesus. The second, they're called to shepherd eagerly, not for shameful gain. And the question here is, am I doing this because of what I get out of it or because of what I can give? That's the question. Apart from the good news of Jesus, I will be tempted to turn elder ministry into a means of gain. That's how this heart works. Maybe not like the preachers of L.A. and so on and so forth, but but shameful gain takes all sorts of shapes. Whether it's power or notoriety, prestige, or just simply a paycheck. Is that what this is about? I need, I need the paycheck? If my motivation in being an elder is more about what I get out of the deal than what I can give to Christ, then I'm using the office for shameful gain. But Christ wants elders to shepherd with eagerness, not for what we get, but for what we can give. And it's reflecting on the gospel that makes this possible too. When I step back and consider who Christ is and what he's done for me in his life, his death, and his resurrection, how I who deserved his judgment because of my rebellion, have been invited into his family and forgiven of my sin by his grace. When I think of what Christ has given me on the cross, there's nothing on this earth I could hope to gain that's better than that. And when I think about what Christ has promised to those in the end when he returns, those who follow him and, and, and who, who belong to him, this crown that he's promised to his faithful servants in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's nothing that competes on earth with that either. So what is it really that I stand to gain that God hasn't already given me graciously in Christ? The gospel frees me to shepherd, not for shameful gain, but with a grace-fueled eagerness. And then finally, number three, Elders are to shepherd as an example, not being domineering. And the difference here is pretty simple as well. Shepherding is about serving Christ and his flock. Domineering is about using Christ and his flock. If I lose sight of what Christ has done for me and what he's called all of us to through the gospel and I approach the responsibility of being an elder as though all of the weight is on me, I'm going to get pretty controlling. Because if I lose control for a second, all of this is going to spin out of, out of control into chaos. I must have control. And so here's where we're going. Here's how we're going to get there. Get on board or you're going to get left behind. And it's a sad but common truth 
that this is so often what's happening in the name of eldership today. Jared Wilson offers some signs to help us discern if we've moved from shepherding to domineering. These are painful but revealing, and they're applicable to more than just elders, but to anybody in leadership. Signs that we're no longer shepherding but but are domineering. Number one, you insulate yourself from criticism and or interpret any criticism as a tax or insubordination. Number two, you have a paranoia about who is and who isn't in line. Number three, you have a need to micromanage or hold others back from leadership opportunities or other responsibilities. Number four, you have an impulse to hoard credit and shift blame. Now, most of us have probably worked under leaders who've had some of those characteristics. Most of us would rather never do that again because we know the pain it causes. And and if this wasn't a real temptation, Peter wouldn't be teaching against it. Elders must watch themselves first and then also the flock. How are we shepherding the flock? Parents can look at this list and ask, how am I shepherding my children's heart? The common thread in domineering is that all of this is really ultimately about me. And so once again, what we need is to be rescued from ourselves by the gospel of Jesus and the good news of Christ. We need to be delivered from the temptation to lord authority over people and be freed instead to be examples of the flock. That's the calling there. To model not arrogance and brashness, but humility and tenderness. Dependence on God's grace. Being approachable and willing to be found wrong. That I don't have all of this figured out. Elders need to be approachable. They need to be held accountable by the flock. Loving sheep as Jesus Loved us. That's the call. Even if it means that I have to let go of control of the outcome of my ministry. And and that I have to actually trust Jesus to guide the church. Instead of me manipulating the way forward. It's harder to get results that way. But the results God gives are real and lasting. If it's a fruit of the gospel and not of my own domineering manipulation. And so shepherds must not only lead, feed, know, and protect with the gospel, they must also do it by the gospel, by trusting it for their own lives and ministries. God's not left us to figure out the best models of leadership. He's given us elders to shepherd the flock according to his word. And faithful elders will shepherd with the gospel and by the gospel. That's what you should expect of your leaders. That's what you should pray for and encourage them in. That's what you should hold them accountable to doing. 
And it's the good news of Jesus that makes all of this possible. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we think about how no part of life is untouched by what Christ has accomplished for us, we pray that you would apply his work by your spirit to our lives and to our leadership in this church. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Which means we have to first confess that we don't have it all together. We don't have it all figured out. But we have a Savior who does. And that's our hope. And that's our goal. And that's the direction we must follow. So give us grace. Give all of us grace as we journey between the cross and new creation. And keep us faithful. Tethered to your word. Dependent on your gospel. Seeking your glory and not our own. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.